Hey, Devils fans, make sure to sign up for the RWJ Barnabas Health Running with the Devils Virtual 5K, where 100% of the proceeds from the event will benefit RWJ Barnabas Health's Emergency Response Fund. Those who register and run the 5K via the RunGo app between October 1st and October 25th and submit their best time are entered for a chance to receive prizes. Visit NewJerseyDevils.com slash 5K to register. Well, it's that time of the year when hockey fans get really excited about what the future holds, not necessarily in the NHL, but what the future holds in terms of who will fill the pipeline and who someday might play for their favorite team. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Lachlan, along with Amanda Stein. This is Speak of the Devils, our podcast that has met with so much success, and we thank you for your support. And Amanda, this is it. The draft is getting closer and closer and closer. Devils have three picks in the first round. And while, yes, we want to see the Devils do well this year on the ice, we know that a draft is very integral in terms of what the future holds. So we're going to really just sit back and watch and enjoy this process unfold. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think about how two, three years ago, it was Nico. A year after that, it was Ty at 17. Then there was Jack. And this year, there's just the excitement of having three, you know, picks in the top 20. So we've been really fortunate the last couple of years when it comes to the NHL draft. And especially if you consider the year that we picked 17, we were in the playoffs. So you had that added excitement to everything. So, you know, this is just going to be awesome, especially because of how things ended with the season in terms of suddenly, you know, poof, it was gone and no one really got to say goodbye or see the season play out. This is a really nice thing to feel like we're finally at a point where we're not talking about, you know, the pause or how things ended. We are now in a point in our lives where we're starting to, you know, carefully look forward and it kind of goes along with what the draft is. It does indeed. And this year's draft is different from a lot of standpoints because of the environment we're in, but it will come right after the season ends. But because the next season will begin so shortly thereafter, unlike past years where it really was a capper to the year, this to me is really from a devil standpoint is going to be the kickoff. Yeah. Uh, to the to the new season, because shortly thereafter, then you have free agency, start a camp and games being played. So this will be the beginning. And since we haven't really done much of anything, <laughs> yes, we've we've officially named a GM. Uh, we have a head coach, an assistant coach that's been named and more announcements coming uh, perhaps after we record this. But that's been it. So no, I want great. games. I want stuff. I want to see players practice. That's like, I want, I want to stop talking to you on the podcast. Hey, I'll now. Talk to an actual person. <laughs> no, but, but you're right. It's just about looking forward to what's next. I mean, we've been blessed as a franchise to have quite a bit of news to talk about, even though we weren't in the return to play plan. But you really want to talk about like the hockey and because we didn't get that in the return to play. You're right. This is the kickoff. And uh, I really, honestly, I couldn't be more excited. It seems, you know, it was like six months ago that everything really shut down for everyone. So half a year, it's quite remarkable to sort of wrap your head around. But here we are, like I said, you know, just before this is about looking forward piece by piece. 
the draft has come so far in terms of the information available about the players, the uh, scouting that takes place not only in person but via video, uh, the information overload at times. It all has combined to make it uh, a, a much I won't say a better draft, but a much more likely of success draft. I think players, you know, who get drafted in the top couple of picks are generally going to pan out. There were some times when that wasn't the case for whatever reason. So I think it's a lot better now. And what it's also spawned is this increase in information is a group of people who are spot on in terms of the draft, not scouts we're talking about, but people who have devoted their professional lives, their media lives to covering the draft and we're lucky to have one of those guys with us today yeah you hit the nail on the head it's you know sort of remarkable to think that there are people whose job is to you know live five six years down the road right you know and like they're doing work now for five six years that's not easy you know, you, you think about like predictions for the next hockey season. Generally, they're all completely wrong because there's something that happens. <laughs> but these guys tend to have the information to really hit the ball out of the park. Probably not the best term to use when we're talking about hockey. But, uh, <laughs> but, but certainly, yeah, it, 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 we're very fortunate to talk to a lot of these people. And you're right. They've most often been, you know, bang on with their predictions. No doubt about it. And they have great sources. They work it. They go to a lot of games. Crazy. Uh, they're not just basing it on what they read or from afar watching a game. They're on site. They're looking at it with their own eyes and then supplementing that with uh, various sources from around the National Hockey League. And one of those people, and we're very pleased to welcome him to our podcast is Sam Cosentino of Sportsnet. Welcome to Speak of the Devil, Sam Cosentino. I appreciate, uh, we appreciate you giving us some of your time. Before we get into the draft and before we get into the nuts and bolts of what we're going to talk about, tell me about being a bat boy for the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, it's it's the coolest job you could ever have. Um, back in 87 at Old Exhibition Stadium, a friend of mine was working there and I ended up getting a job working as a, as a bat boy in the visiting clubhouse. And I kind of extended it a little bit. I, I graduated in 90, went to school in, in Spring Arbor College in Michigan, played in a baseball scholarship there. And then oddly enough, baseball was in in strike mode. So in late April of 95, when the season started, the Blue Jays called me back and said, hey, can you come work in our visiting clubhouse? In 96, I switched to the home side and as assistant to clubhouse and equipment manager and worked there to 02. So you know what? Uh, some of the greatest years of my life met some unbelievable people, a lot of people that I'm still in contact with today, uh, ex-players, coaches, GMs, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm blessed to have uh, had my start in that realm for sure. What's one of the coolest, you know, moments you had doing that? Or maybe it was like an interaction with a player or a coach. I mean, what what would comes to mind for you? Well, we had a we had a couple of we, we had a group that really liked to golf. So, you know, Woody Williams, uh Chris Carpenter, Darren Fletcher, uh Dan Plesak, as many of your um, viewers slash listeners would be familiar with. We used to get out in the golf course quite a bit. And uh, Roger Clemens was a was a big golf guy as well. And he was actually the guy who ended up buying me my first clubs. They were down in Carlsbad on a, on a trip and That's came cool. back from TaylorMade and had a had a whole new bag for me. But we had some uh, some pretty crazy dinners where uh, the bills got passed around uh, suspiciously. Um, you know, so the, some stuff you can't talk about for sure. But I just being able to play golf, uh, Amanda, and and kind of hang out with with the guys was a real cool experience. But uh, 
you know, I think about uh, going back on a road trip in, in 97 that took us to, to Baltimore and Texas and, you know, having a lot of fun uh, on the road, losing my meal money before we literally got up in the Never air. Never so go the boys, to the back of the plane. I Never go to the back of the plane. Matt, I thought I was the cool guy first road trip, and I swear we were still ascending, and my 600 US dollars was gone just like that. <laughs> and there's really no sympathy. I, I could tell a similar story when I was – covering the Mets and uh, yeah, we had just been given the envelope with our per diem and I'm <laughs> flush with cash. And I think, you know, come on, how bad it could be in a very short time later, tail very between bad. my legs. Um, <laughs> and there's no sympathy. It's no like, Oh, Oh, don't worry about it. We got you. No, it's oh, like, yeah. okay, thank you for the donation. Yeah, <laughs> now, now get up and we need your seat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It is cold blooded. There's no question about it. So how did you make the transition to what you're doing now? Well, I, when I went to Spring Arbor, I actually, uh, I went there for two reasons. Baseball was one of them, but because they had a great uh, broadcasting program there. So I called uh, college basketball games there for four years. Uh, but in my previous stint with the Blue Jays, I got to meet a lot of the media people. And pretty funny story, because in, in 2003, the Canadian Baseball League started. It lasted barely four months. But Buck Martinez was our manager in 2001, and the people running that league had a bit of a fascination with stardom, if you will. And so I, I talked to Buck and I talked to, to Dan Schulman. I said, guys, would you be so kind as to write me a letter of recommendation or even uh, call the president of the Canadian Baseball League and, and see if you can get me a, you know, help get me the gig. And sure enough, I ended up getting that gig. It was about eight games. It was crazy, crazy stories that I could tell you forever about what happened there. But Willie Wilson, basically in the last game, which was an all-star game, said, let's get this stuff going. And uh, it kind of went off the rails from there. But there was a whole <laughs> cast of characters involved in that. And actually, one of the owners or investors in the league at the time was a guy by the name of Jeffrey Mallet, one of the uh, original uh, guys from Yahoo, who I believe to this day is still a part owner of the San Francisco Giants. So it's just crazy how all these crazy baseball mm -hmm. circles came together. Oh, four, I did some Expos games uh, for the score television network. And then in oh, five and oh, six, uh, I got back on the broadcasting side with the Blue Jays as, as the field reporter and maintained that job for about five years. So really cool baseball background. I'm so thankful for it. Uh, I love the game to this day. When did that crossover to hockey happen for you? And was that something, you know, you really wanted to do? Was the hockey world where you wanted to go? Because sometimes it just lands in our lap and we make a career of it, right? Well, Amanda, it's funny <laughs> you say that because um, what happened was, and, and again, very uh, relatable to, to New Jersey Devils fans, John Drews had the job. Uh, was okay. the color analyst on the CHL games. And unfortunately, he had a daughter who who came ill and, and eventually uh, ended up passing. Uh, but because John couldn't make all the games, I'd get called at the last minute. Hey, can you go to Hamilton for an AHL game? Hey, we need you to go to Kelowna for a WHL game. And I'm sitting yeah. there and I'm like, I'm a baseball guy. I don't even know what the WHL is. I, I, the American Hockey League, I know what it is, but I don't really know enough about it. So some crash studying to, yep. to kind of figure out who the players were. And, you know, obviously there was some familiarity there. Uh, I had done some games locally. So with the Ontario Hockey League, so there was some familiarity with some players and coaches and so on and so forth there. And it kind of ended up crossing over into, they, they wanted me to focus on one thing and, and, and they chose hockey. I wanted to stay in, in baseball. 
Um, but we had some great conversations and, and the bosses at that time felt it was better to go down this road. And, and here I am 15 year, years later, still in hockey. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. And I think many of us in the business have similar stories to tell. I, I relate to everyone who asks me about, well, I'm out of college or I'm in college and how do I kind of pursue this path? You take every job that comes yeah. your way. You never say no. I mean, I've done harness racing. I've done track and awesome. field. I did speedboat racing one time and the wow. checks the checks amazing. The checks bounced, by the way. It was funny. <laughs> the crew must have known because we finished our last series um, and we did it out of a studio. So not unlike what we'll have to do and what they're doing now yeah. in the bubble, but and what we'll have to do moving forward. Anyway, so we're we're calling these races out of out of a studio. And before the last one, there's this conversation going on among the crew like hey cat like we're going right to the bank when this is done like we got the check we're going and i'm like what's going on they said cash the check just cash the check and i think oh what's a little ride it's a friday i'm gonna go home i'll cash it saturday that spaldine still hasn't come down yet and uh the production company good luck uh, trying to track them down so anyway that's a lesson you learn too. Really mostly, great. mostly you get paid every once in a while. <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> rubber ball comes and boing, yeah. there it goes. When you take it, when you take every gig you can get, it's experience. It's opening doors. It's meeting people. You know, don't close, uh, don't shut a door or a window to anything. That's what I say. Yeah, no question. How often really is the path in our business ever a straight line? Never. Very, very rarely. Never, yeah. never. You just keep working and clawing your way and you find your way to a position as high as you can go. So anyway, we've kind of taken a twisty, windy <laughs> road, but it's all been good. The stories have been excellent. So the draft as uh, you know, in an odd year, uh, to say the least, it'll be a virtual draft, it looks like. Uh, we found out just prior to recording this that the draft had been moved uh, and in the United States, I don't think people realize that Canadian Thanksgiving is much earlier than ours. We have so, a different uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Sam, you were saying that that played, uh, as you think, uh, a role in that that switch, eh? Yeah, I think so. We got uh, the heads up going back to last week that the that the date might change a little bit, and uh, you know there was some some talk with our people over at Sportsnet, and of course they they came out with it today and. Uh, I think Matt, you made a great point uh, too before we we started recording. Here is the fact that hey, let's let's get it on, man. Let's get this thing rolling. If we don't know who we're picking by now, then we're never going to know with all this additional time that that they've had to prepare. But it does present some interesting challenges because when you look at some of the European teams that are starting to play now, and they've you know those players have had a summer that seems to have been a little bit more lax in terms of the rules and what they were mm -hmm. able to do than some of the players in North America. So they may very well look a little bit different to scouts. And there's no question that you have to continue scouting right up until that point. So it'll be fascinating to see if it changes the minds of some of the people based on a lot of the European players would have had some time leading up to that October 6th date where a lot of the North American players or at least the CHL players would not have had that uh, that kind of time. You know, when you have a draft that, you know, everyone says this is one of the deeper drafts in years, does that make it all the more interesting when we are in this scenario that you were just talking about where players really can possibly move because everybody's so close? Yeah, I, I would have to say that that there's definitely that case to be made. I mean, if you think about some of the players and what happens over the course of a summer, if a guy 
has a crazy growth spurt and grows two to three inches. And he's a defenseman that you were looking at who might've been five, nine, and all of a sudden he's five eleven or six foot. That probably changes your complexion. If you have a guy who, you know, could fill out into his frame and I think about Quentin Byfield as big as he already is, that if he was able to add 10 or 12 pounds of muscle, I mean, how much higher would he have to go anyways? But it definitely, I think, changes the complexion for some of the players. Once you kind of get past that number 10 or 12 pick in the draft, where there seems to be a wide variance of players that a lot of teams are agreeing on, I do think it will have an impact, uh, especially past that 12 pick for sure. And there's no way Alexis Lafreniere doesn't go first, right? No, I think uh, this has kind of been ordained. I think he's going to be hanging out in in Manhattan uh, at the NHL studios. And I think Jeff Gorton will probably be right around the corner saying, all right, we can finally make this thing official here. I I, I can't see it uh, not happening with, uh, with Alexis Lafreniere. Everyone uh, looking forward to the draft, and it does appear that he is definitely the presumptive number one. He's been in that position for a long time. I mean, you never know, but there aren't a lot of trades at the number to, one to overall pick. It's think they go another way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you just don't trade the number one overall pick, but who knows? Ottawa's got a couple extra extra choices there, and if the Rangers think they can fill a pipeline with a couple of their picks and give up the number one. So you never know. And, and you know, after the excitement of getting the number one pick, Rangers have been awfully quiet. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it would be fascinating because I got to tell you, if I have the number one pick and you're offering me three and five, I, I would strongly, strongly consider it. And specifically for this draft, because when I look at Ottawa and the way they're positioned now, they're in a great position to address the two most difficult positions, get a defenseman. And if you're really excited about the defenseman, like you take him at three and then take the centerman at five, whoever that might be. Does Byfield fall there? Does Stutzla fall there? Um, Whatever the case might present itself, Marco Rossi, does he end up being there? And are you okay with not having the two centers, but getting the D that you want? So now if you're Jeff Gordon, you're saying, hey, I might be able to do the same thing and and fulfill a a center need and a a need at D. I I don't know, man. I'd, I'd have to consider it. I mean, I wouldn't put anything past Pierre Dorian. Here's a guy who, in Ottawa, he really took a lot of abuse for what had happened. You know, Mark Stone uh, leaving, Carlson leaving. And as it turns out, he's got Josh Norris in the pipeline now. It looks like he's going to be a star in the making. Got him in the San Jose trade. You look at Rudolph's Balsers, who's done a pretty good job. You look at where um, uh, their position now in, in this draft with three first-round picks, uh, I think Pierre Doran sneakily did a very good job there. And who knows, he might be in position to even rock the boat a little further if he wants to move off of three and five and try and get up to number one. Love disruptors. You never know. It's <laughs> the best part of it. So the Devils have three first-round picks as well, seven, 18, and 20. Who at seven do you see as being available? But more importantly, who do you think they're going to pick? What's your opinion? Yeah, so so that's a really fascinating position to be in because the two defensemen, I think, are going to change what happens in the top 10. And the two defensemen I'm talking about are Jamie Drysdale of the Erie Otters in the Ontario Hockey League and Jake Sanderson, who had a real coming out in the second half, who, in my opinion, has surpassed Drysdale, but only by that much as, as being the top guy that I think will be selected. So depending on how excited teams are above the Devils to get those defensemen, and I do think both of them will be gone before the Devils pick, um, they will they will change the complexion of what happens in that first 10. So getting back to your to your question about number seven, I mean, 
if I think about Graham Clark and Nikito Hotchik and Mitchell Holsher, <laughs> and I think about all the times that uh, the Devil's Brass has had the opportunity to watch the Ottawa 67s. Kevin Ball, don't forget Kevin Ball. Think, Kevin Ball, I can't help but think about Marco Rossi uh, being in that spot. And that's, um, you know, maybe the road they want to go down. Now, having said that, if you project Jack Hughes down the road as a centerman and Nico Heischer as a centerman, you tend to want to have your sentiment a little bit bigger than what those two are. And so if you're going to go down that road with a third sentiment who would be average to sub size, then you might consider going in a different direction, but Hey, there's Jack Quinn who might be available at that spot <laughs> as well. An Ottawa 67 and a guy who I do believe will go in the top 10. I mean, how fortunate in a draft like this one, is it for New Jersey to have three first round draft picks you know some drafts that we talked about like some drafts aren't as deep but when you keep hearing how deep it is how fortunate are they to have landed in this position through the moves that the team has made to now have three picks in the top 20 well if you're Fitzy, you got to be really excited about the opportunity of having those three selections that you can actually call your own and the way i would kind of game plan it is when i look at some of the acquisitions of some close to nhl ready prospects last last year you're talking about foot Merkley, Schnarr, uh, those type of players who are very close to be able, being able to make that jump. I think you can afford a little bit of leeway here. So the strategy that I would probably take into this is at seven, I'd take the best player available. At 18, I'd be probably looking to address a, a, a positional need. Uh, and, you know, a puck moving defenseman, offensive type defenseman is someone that I think would have to be near the top of the list for the New Jersey Devils at that point. And then at 20, I might be thinking about hitting a home run. Maybe going off the board a little bit. Maybe a Hendricks LaPierre who was injured for most of the year and I didn't get a chance to really get a, a solid look at him other than what he did at the Helenka Gretzky going back to last August. And so that's probably the approach I'd take. Seven best player, 18 positional need, 20 maybe try and hit a home run there. Well, that lays out a pretty good uh, blueprint. Uh, we'll see whether or not uh, Paul Castor on the director of amateur scouting and Tom Fitzgerald, the GM, follow that route. But I like it. I like the idea of taking a little bit of a chance at 20. But I wonder if the most recent chance, and he was the number two pick overall, uh, you know, Nolan Patrick, scares some people off. because. And I hope this kid comes back. I hope that he finds you know, a way to get get over uh, his his injuries and, and what's uh, afflicted him and can come back. But, and again, there's a difference between two and 20, I get it. But, uh, you know, the Devils aren't in a position, I don't think at this point, where because they need to win, I don't know, risk-taking comes with winning. Do you know what I mean? And the Devils yeah, haven't oh, yeah. quite gotten there yet. So yeah. maybe you have to go a more traditional route. But the the word is this kid's got all the talent in the world. He just was hurt. Yeah, there's no question about it. And when you go back to past drafts and you think about some of the players who were hurt, Nolan Patrick was hurt a lot in his draft year and his draft minus one year. Uh, a late birthday guy, so he had the the option or the, the the benefit of being able to play three years of major junior hockey. I think about Brett Connolly who went fifth to Tampa going back to the 2011 or 2012 draft and how he's finally come along and, and really become a, an impact player at the National Hockey League. I think about Morgan Riley, who was hurt for most of his time when Brian Burke took him uh, at five with the Toronto Maple Leafs, again, going back to 2012, maybe 11 in, in that area, and how it's worked out for some and not necessarily for others. So there is no doubt there is a, a risk-taking element that you'd have to be aware of and have to be comfortable with if at 20 you want to kind of follow what I I've laid out as, as, as a possible blueprint and maybe think about a guy like Hendrick uh, Lapierre there. 
because there uh, was no ability to bring the players in uh, and test them and meet with them, it's all been done on Zoom. So the medical is a little different. You think that impacts, for instance, with this pick, or will the medical, all the information be as, as good as it's always been in terms of the insight that teams will have? Well, I think the NHL will probably have done a really good job and, and Dan Mar and his staff and the due diligence to try and make that available to all the teams to to level the playing field. I mean, we saw the penalty that that had to be paid by the Arizona Coyotes for what they did uh, in, in essentially conducting uh, individual combines with a, with a host of players. I mean, to lose your second rounder this year and to lose your first rounder next year is a, is a really steep price to pay. Many even thought that that was probably too lenient. That's at some point someone should have lost their job. Now, John Chica did lose his job or quit his job. However, you kind of want to bounce that one around and who knows, New Jersey might end up being a, a landing spot for him at some point. But to, to think about um, that and, and, and being able to acquire all the medical information, I mean, these guys are doing a lot of work. Your regional scouts are doing tons and tons of homework. They're phoning billet families. They're phoning teachers. They're talking to trainers. They're talking to friends. They're talking to former teammates, current teammates, to do their due diligence on their player. And why shouldn't you? You're going to put a significant investment into this player, so you should know everything about what this player is going to bring to the table. So I do think when it comes to the medical stuff that the NHL will have allowed access to everyone to have equal access. And of course, there's going to be teams and people who have connections and relationships who are going to be able to delve a little further into that. When it comes to LaPierre specifically, though, uh, it's been very public that uh, he, his agent, have come out and they've talked about it. Chikutami, his, his team in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, that was more a neck issue, going back to what Sidney Crosby experienced, you know, when he was going through what was perceived concussions at that point. So, whether you want to take that information, you can look at it, you can analyze it and agree that it was more neck issues than concussion issues, then you would be happy taking this player at that spot. If you still find that it's a gray area, then of course there's going to be some risk taking in, in taking that player. But again, we're making that assumption that A, Hendricks Lapierre is going to be taken at 20 mm -hmm. and B, that he's not gone before then okay. um, if, if that's not the case for another team. So there's still a lot to be determined there, no doubt. We've talked about how, you know, we're all in such a unique scenario, even before we were recording, you know, to how we're all on Zoom and how everything's kind of new. I mean, what are you interested in seeing in how the NHL puts together the draft, how that's all going to work? And for me, anyways, I feel I feel for the kids, especially in the first round who won't have that opportunity to walk up on stage in front of their friends and family and put on that jer jersey for the first time. That, that kind of like strikes me. I just like feel bad for them, but it's going to be a unique scenario, is it not? And have you heard anything about how the league is going to try and approach this? Yeah, no question. And that's the thing that I, that I'm really concerned about too. Um, you know, on, getting that once in a lifetime opportunity with your family, the big hug that we catch on camera, the tears that are flowing from the brother, the mother, the father, the grandparents, you know, that's obviously going to be missed. And that's a big part of the, of the draft experience. Now, having said that the uniqueness of this, assuming that we're not going to go down this road again in 2021, will also put those players in a spotlight that no other player in any draft history mm -hmm. has been part of. So that's kind of a, a cool element to say, yeah, I was the pandemic draft. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you think about what had happened then. And 
you know, but, but the way I would suspect it playing out is that, uh, you know, at the NHL studios in Secaucus, uh, you know, Gary Bettman, John Daly, uh, will, will be there. And then from there, they'll kind of make the pick available, um, online. They'll have cameras set up in the particular player's home, you know, uh, you know, hugging kisses with the family, still being able to experience that in a safe and socially distant way. And so that kind of will be a, the, the way that I think they will approach it. And then of course, depending on where you guys are, obviously a big draft for the New Jersey Devils that you would have some sort of studio presence based in New Jersey or maybe in front of the forest or, you know, in Matt's <laughs> living room there where you guys can be able to discuss what's, what's going on with the picks that the Devils are making. I think from us in the sports net and being a national carrier, um, you know, most likely we'll be in a socially distant studio set up uh, similar to the way that we've done the games and in our intermissions on Hockey Night in Canada and, and the other broadcasts at Sportsnet. So, uh, you know, very centrally located in Secaucus and then the ability to branch out to the various markets to do something more personal to the market. For those who aren't watching, uh, I'm not in a forest. I just have hedges <laughs> behind me. I'm sitting outside. <laughs> Although it does it, look like a forest. <laughs> it, enjoying a cool Montreal afternoon. It's the weather fall has, here, that's for sure. The yeah. weather ha, has changed. Here. Here's a suggestion I would make, though, in terms of having to do this via Zoom, is send all the sweaters of the teams to the players. Now, maybe <laughs> yeah, Lafreniere yeah. will be number one so that they only need to send the Rangers jersey. Yeah. Uh, maybe the Rangers. But then he gets, they just grab it out of the pile. No one has to hand it to him. <laughs> they go. And with the seventh pick, the Devils select Marco Rossi of the Ottawa 67s and someone in his family hands him a devil sweater and he puts it on <laughs> and does this. And you know what? And, and, and then you just keep the rest of the sweaters. That's it. The ones you didn't use, just keep hand out to people, uh, you know, don't worry about it. On hockey that's, games. That, yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the league's <laughs> gift uh, to you. Uh, I like it. That, yeah, why not? Uh, Steve Mayer, by the way, uh, we know will come up with something. Uh, he's done a great job. He's the, the man behind the return to play and everything that's taken place from a production standpoint and uh, the NHL award shows and draft shows under other circumstances i'm sure he'll come up with something a little better of an idea than that but steve if you're listening go with the sweater delivery i'm i'm all in on that one what 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 is what is this draft what is this draft about what makes this one maybe different than others what do you what do you find is the trademark the hallmark of this draft sam well, I like the wide variance of players and I like uh, defensemen, you know, I like the centermen in this group. I like the fact that there's a nice mix of European players, uh, Canadian Hockey League players. When I look at, I said John Daly, I'm, I'm just having a little bit of a brain cramp. I think I said John Daly instead Did of you, I didn't, Oh, I didn't pick <laughs> that up. Let me, let me go back. Uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> He's that a guy actually... <laughs> Well, cutting off, let's go back a little. I did interview him at Thundering Waters, which is in Niagara Falls, Ontario, where he tried to hit a ball across under the falls on the American side. So maybe that's why he was stuck in my head. Still there you go. here in, in, in Toronto. So sorry to get back to that. But um, yeah, just uh, and sorry, Matt. I'm, I'm, I went off track now. Now I forgot what we're talking about. Oh, no so problem. So what, what's, the, what's the hallmark? What is this draft about? Yeah. What, you know, how would you define this draft? Okay, so let's let's go back to 2019, and we talked about the U.S. development program and all the records that they set with the number of players, the number of players in the top 10. Hughes, of course, going first overall, and and 
the whole draft year was basically centered around that team and that group and just how good a group it was. Yet from a team perspective, they didn't win anywhere near what they thought they would win. So again, talk about all the great individual players that came off the U.S. under-18 team. When I look to this year, I think it's shifting back to the Canadian Hockey League. And I think, and I don't say that to be biased because that's the league I work in. But when I look at the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, I think about Lafreniere as the number one guy. Uh, and then you move down the, the list and you talk about Hendricks Lapierre. And I think about what's happening in the Western Hockey League and and uh, Caden Gooley out there, defenseman for Prince Albert and Ridley Gregg and, and Braden Schneider. And I think about the Ontario Hockey League and Jamie Drysdale and Quinton Byfield. Uh, so I do think that across the three Canadian hockey leagues, there's a lot of really good players to, to be selected here. So shifting from the U.S. under-18 program in 2019 to maybe back to the CHL in 2020. One thing that we're going to see a little bit less of, I think, are the Finnish players that have been so successful in, in recent years where we've seen a lot of high-end Finns go in the top 10. That's not going to quite be the case this year, a bit of a down year uh, for Finland after a real successful you know, four- or five-year run. Uh, so that's one thing that will differ a little bit. On that same note, when it comes to, you know, going from the first round to the second round, sometimes you there's like a noticeable drop off in the tier of player. But where does that line kind of fall this year, given how strong it is? Yeah, that's a great question, Amanda. And I think when you look at about the the top 40 players, there's going to be some wide variances probably in that 12 to 20 range and the 20 to 40 range. So I do think that there are a lot of the similar names that will be taken in the top 12, maybe not quite as predictive uh, in terms of when we look at the, the defenseman, as we talked about before, with Drysdale, with Sanderson, and maybe stretching that out to Caden Gooley when you get into that 12 range. But I do think that there's going to be a lot of good players to be had when you get into that second round. And it was funny, I was going back and watching, I think it was the 2016 top prospects game. And I looked in that game, Alex Debrinkit, second rounder. He's been an unbelievable NHL player. Carter Hart was in that game, second round pick. He's become a really good NHL player. Um, so there are definitely some players that I think are of that ilk to be found in the early stages of the second round here this year as well. Ray Shiro, the uh, former Devils general manager, has said that there are Hall of Famers that have come out of the sixth round. So, you know, it, it's just it's not a crapshoot. The science of the draft has improved so much from 25 years ago. The information is greater. Uh, the availability of videotape and all that sort of stuff, the competitions they're in. So you see best on best a lot more often. So there aren't the mistakes that were made maybe a quarter of a century ago. Well, that sounds like a long time. Let's say 25 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Uh, but you, there are there are players who are going to slip through for whatever reason. They didn't perform well in a tournament, a little undersized, late growth spurt, whatever it might be. So uh, there are always some goodies at the lower end of the draft too. But this one appears to be a, a particularly burdened draft in terms of its steps. So we're excited about that. Where does uh, Askarov go? Yaroslav Askarov. The oh, man. That's a crazy, crazy question. And there's uh, some talk earlier in the year that maybe even inside the top five. And I think some teams cooled on him. Of course, he's got a, a wonderful international pedigree. Um, I think he's played in six international events and has medaled in all of them, which is extremely difficult, especially at that position. Um, and then you think about, okay, 
the way I like to look at goaltenders and, and I am, I'm dead set against taking them in the first round because I believe they take so long to develop for the most part that as a general manager, you're probably not there to see that player come to fruition because of the, the, the lifespan of a general manager is, is so short. So not something I like to take in the first round. Now, having said that, let's talk about Mark Andre Fleury. Let's talk about Carey Price. Let's talk about Andre Vasilevsky. And now you're saying, okay, I've just hit a home run with a franchise-changing player in the most important position on the ice. So when it comes to Askarov, that becomes a great question. Because this draft is so filled with great centermen, great defensemen, which are usually the two most uh, positionally um, rated uh, positions where you're trying to, to acquire players and tough to get them on the free agent market without paying a, a heavy ransom for them. You want to try and develop those players. Of course, the same thing happens at the goaltending position. So when I look at this guy, I would say probably 10 is going to be my benchmark for it. And the over and under and 10 might be two, might be eight, might be 12, somewhere in that range. But if I'm an NHL general manager and I'm going to take a goaltender in the first round, what I want to do is trying to take that same approach as the Washington Capitals, as they did with Samsonov, as the Tampa Bay Lightning did with Vasilevsky, where you can say, all right, we know that we're not going to see you for two years. You're going to finish out your contract in the VHL slash KHL, depending on which level you're able to play at there. Then you're going to come on over. We're going to get you accustomed to what things are like in North America with the food, with the living, with the smaller rink, the different angles that a goaltender has to face. You're going to play in the AHL for at least one year, maybe two. And hopefully by that time, if we're projecting you as a first round guy, that by that third year in North America, you can come as Samsonov did last year, playing a backup role. And then look what he did this year in a role where he was spelling off Holtby, uh, had an unbelievable record. And now he's had that nice progression he hasn't been rushed. There hasn't been too much pressure put on the player. And now he can come in and have the opportunity to perform in a comfortable environment. So if I'm a team taking a goaltender in the first round, I want to look and say, all right, I've got Holtby signed for this long. I know I can keep him in Russia for a couple of years. I know I can bring him over and, and afford him two years in the American Hockey League. And then I know I can bring him in as a backup. I'd like to be in that position. And there's not a lot of teams in that position that have that great certainty with a guy who signed long-term in goal to allow you to have that steady progression. Is that a type of conversation? Obviously, there was no combine this year, but I'm sure players are meeting with, you know, uh, general managers and uh, front offices over Zoom like we're doing right now. But is that a type of conversation that the general managers would have with a potential prospect just to get their feel of how they feel about that? I would definitely think that would be part of the conversation. I mean, I know in the, in, in the combine when it's face-to-face and, and a yeah. player walks in, into a room full of people, he some of them are being challenged and I mean to the nth degree and to the point where there's been some players that have come back and complained about what they felt was unfair treatment in the interview process. And so I think that's a, a very valid and fair question that if I were going to invest a high pick in, in a player of that ilk at that position, that I'd want him to know that, Hey, if we take you here at seven, this is, this is the plan we have for you here. You know, this is what we think, we're going to do. We're going to allow you to stay at home. You're going to grow up a little bit. You're going to grow. You're going to work out. You're going to play with your club team. You're going to have a successful year. And then we're going to think about a, a four to five year plan to get you into the National Hockey League. Are you okay with that? And if right away the, the player says no, then I think you have a pretty good answer that you want to go in a different direction. And if you have the genuine sense that that player is saying, 
you know what? I feel that way about myself too. I'd like to stay at home for a couple more years until I'm 20 years old. I'd like to have the opportunity to make this step from the VHL to the KHL and become an all-star in that league before I think about coming over and and playing in North America. And so I I think that's the kind of thing that when you're in the combine and you're in the room face-to-face and you can look at someone's body language and you can shake their hand and have that face-to-face and eye-to-eye, it's not the same as Zoom. It's close because you still have the face-to-face, but you're missing on some of those other human key elements that I think that you'd want to have to understand about a player. So when it comes to Askarov in particular, I think um, the, the best solution would be to have him on a long-term plan. Um, but having said that, he is so talented. He's so gifted. He's got good size. He's really super athletic that there's probably going to be a team that jumps on him in that 8-12 to 12 range. Who's the most NHL-ready in this draft? Well, Lafreniere would be the guy, no question. I think after that, there's going to be some concern. Is Jake Sanderson that guy? Because his dad played in the National Hockey League, because he's used to being around the big time and the big leagues. And you talk to his coaches and his teammates at the U.S. Under-18 program, and they say, this guy's a pro through and through. Just throw him into an NHL room right away. Tim Stutzel is a guy that I think uh, might be um, you know, most well-suited to be able to play in that role because he's played in the German men's league already and has done so successfully. So I think there's probably those three three guys that I think that are in that ilk that might be able to make the jump. Lafreniere, I don't think there's any question about it. Stutzla, I think, could probably do it, you know, if we're using Capocaco maybe as the, as the blueprint for that who played in the league last year and then in the National Hockey League this year. And then I think Jake Sanderson only because he's grown up around it and he's not going to be phased by you know, what the room has or what a road trip has to offer, um, it, it kind of becomes second nature to him. But other than that, I do think that, uh, the, you know, the rest of the group is going to need some time before they're able to play in the National Hockey League. And of course, it depends on the organization. Do they need to fulfill a need in this flat cap world? Do they actually have to have the guy play because he's going to come to you at a, at a cheaper price in his entry level deal? So those things will definitely come into consideration as well. You know, I think we put a lot of pressure on these kids and I think a little time in the American Hockey League, uh, for those who can play there, going back and playing another year in junior for those who have that situation, it's not the worst thing in the world. Let them develop. Let them continue to yeah. to improve their game. Uh, we just push, push, push. And you were the fifth round or fifth overall pick, and you're terrible. Well, he's 21, and he's just getting yeah. his feet wet as a pro. Like what, what is all that? He's playing. <laughs> Come on. Uh, we just we just do elevate uh, the pressure on these on these kids I think a lot uh, what about some of the devil's prospects you know you talked about it. I know we're mostly focusing on the draft here but you brought up a couple of names you know who are the players in your estimation that are knocking on the door that devil's fans will be very excited to see if not this year next year well, I really, I really like Nolan Foot, and I think you know he's been banged up a little bit, but his ability to shoot the puck and scoring goals is obviously something that every team needs. And again, when you come from that NHL background, you're not phased by what's happening away from the rink, and that I think allows you to ultimately focus on what's happening on the ice. So I'm really excited to see him in, in a healthy vein and what he's going to be able to do. Nate Schnarr is a player I love, and and, and the reason I, I like this guy is because. He doesn't have to play in your top six to be an effective player. He's a big body guy who's got good hockey sense. So he can give you some minutes on the PK. He can play in, in, in the back half of your lineup and still have an impact on the game because he's ultimately a responsible player. Yet he has enough skill. And I, you know, I've watched him grow over the last couple of years here that he's going to be able to put up points for you. And I think he's going to try and force himself 
into getting into that top of the lineup, but it's not a necessity for him if he has to play. I look at Big Baller, and I think Kevin Ball's uh, got a real opportunity to step in and do some things. This is a guy who moves so well. He kind of – it's almost deceptive in the way he looks at it. He's kind of got those sleepy eyes, and, you know, he's really kind of economical in his movements and so on and so forth. But when he gets on the ice – the switch turns, he can become a, a real nasty guy, really kind of play that bully style of game that I, that I think a guy that his size should play with and trying to impose his will on the opponent. His ability to move pucks, skate, uh, play a simple game, his ability to be able to adjust to being the offensive guy or having to be that stay-at-home shutdown guy, be tough in front of the net front, be tough and winning board battles and pucks behind the net. So those would be some guys there that I'd definitely be excited to watch. You know, Merkley's another one. He got into some NHL games. He's kind of a sleepy guy too. He reminds me of Baller. He's got those kind of sleepy eyes, yet he's a guy who I think um, plays a real cerebral game, really good playmaker, and and he shoots the puck pretty well too. So he's going to be fun to watch if he gets an extended look at the NHL level too. It's, you know, interesting when we're talking about so many of these young prospects in New Jersey system because you know I joined the team in 2017 was my first year the 2017-18 and I don't remember even then having so many young talented prospects to talk about it's quite remarkable how a franchise can really restock their cupboard if they're making the right types of moves yeah, no question. And sometimes it, it, it happens even at the NHL level. I mean, I look at the, the Gusev acquisition and here's a guy who's an older player and wasn't going to work out for him in Vegas. And so there was an opportunity for him to to find a, a new life. And it looks like he's done that uh, with Jersey. I mean, you go back to 2015, I think there's five or six Devils picks. I think all of them have NHL games. You think about the, you know, Miles Woods of the world, the Jesper Bratz of the world who were you know, maybe picked a little bit down and uh, down the road and thinking that, oh, yeah, maybe they're not going to have a chance. And next thing you know, they surprise you. You think about Michael McLeod and, and Matt, you made a real good point earlier about, hey, this guy's a first round pick. He's got to be in the lineup. Why is he not in the NHL? And, and, for, and, and for some players, it just takes a little bit longer, regardless of where they're picked. So putting a timeline on a player simply because of where he's picked is, is definitely the wrong way to go about your business. And I think, you know, watching McLeod and Bastion and those guys who were teammates back in Mississauga in the day, starting to progress and have some success at the American Hockey League, getting to dip their feet into the National Hockey League, I think is also going to be, um, you know, the way in, in which the Devils can go with that long list of prospects, Amanda, that you talked about. And, you know, just on that same note, tying in what Maddie said about, you know, wanting to see these prospects do so well right away, you know, there's Ty Smith in the fold where fans are just begging to see him in the lineup, so disappointed that he's often one of the, if not the last cut at training camp. Yeah. You cover the CHL, you watch closely. How beneficial do you think those two years have been for Ty? I'm glad you reminded me of Ty Smith. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful human being. And I'm glad you brought him up because, again, he's another guy I've watched uh, play a lot and a guy that I've uh, been able to get to know personally. So when it comes to the character part of it, I mean, that's in the bank. You can put that to bed right now. And I think Amanda uh, was going back to two years ago when I was hearing a lot of the same things that you guys would have witnessed uh, at camp that he was about to make the team and it didn't quite yeah, happen. He was and obviously. The last yeah, and, and obviously there was some disappointment there, but you come back, you play World Juniors, you play a lead role there. Then you come back to your next camp and you think based on your first camp that, oh, I'm going to make it this year for sure. And then that doesn't work out. So I think the slow and steady process with him is a real good way to go here. I mean, 
it's not every day that the Damon Severson is going to make that surprise jump from the Kelowna Rockets into the National Hockey League and be a mainstay on your blue line. Um, if there was anyone who I thought would be able to do it, it would have been Ty Smith. But now the, the benefactor of those two years playing in some high leverage situations on a really good Spokane team, a couple of world juniors under his belt where this past year with Canada on a gold medal team, he played a real important role. Uh, and I think, you know, the risk stuff is behind him now and he's going to have an opportunity to be able to go out and, and really make his mark in this camp whenever it takes place (laughs) whenever hopefully sooner (laughs) rather than later in announcing the new draft date the league did put out again subject to change though november 17th camp december 1st start we'll see there's a lot of talk that that might be pushed off a little bit but yeah it's it's suddenly around the corner like it's already september 8th as we record this like it, it we've been locked up for too long, but it, uh, time does march on, and, and we will be back together again shortly. Uh, last couple from me. Is there one player that has a chance to sneak into a position that no one's really talking about right now? So is there somebody you have an eye on that either one of two things? He will move up uh, maybe from late in the first round to a little earlier because you happen to like what you see, and now you're starting to hear a little more buzz from from your sources or somebody that because we tend to judge on this scale is he big is he fast is he this it doesn't fit so we can't we can't risk drafting him at this spot but when he goes watch out so Thomas Bortolo is, is one of those guys he was a U.S. under 18 guy really really smart player hard worker, leader in the room, again, has, you know, NHL bloodlines and that experience to have, uh, having been able to draw on. He was a guy who started to get some more and more talk as the year went on, much the same way Jake Sanderson did. I think Sanderson was always a first rounder. I think Bordalo is probably a guy who's worked himself into the fringes of being into that first round now. So he'd be one player that I'd definitely uh, be considering because he's a little bit smaller and maybe he's not the greatest skater and maybe he's been overshadowed by some of the other players, um, you know, in that program. Ty Smilanik is another guy in that U.S. under 18 team uh, that went through three different injuries this year, who I think is a guy that uh, because of, you know, mono and a foot thing and a hand thing and all of those things that maybe he gets overlooked a little bit, but as a guy who's an excellent skater who plays with a ton of energy, who's a really responsible player and is a bit of a firecracker. One other guy that I want to talk about that uh, I've gotten to know a little bit over the last couple of years is Ozzy Weisblatt. He plays for the Prince Albert Raiders. He's a smallish uh, type of forward, but again, is one of those guys who plays like his hair is on fire, just a, <laughs> just a bundle of energy. And so when, when I look at this player, there's a lot of rawness to him. He grew up in a family where um, his mother was deaf. And so um, his mother was, had to raise, I think it was four kids. And so he's undergone a lot of hardships in his life already. And I love those guys who are a great story, but use that family situation as motivation to become better people and better players. And I think Ozzy Weisblatt definitely fits that bill. I also look at a guy whose skill set says, yeah, I'm a first rounder, but being undersized is probably going to push him down towards latter stages of that first round or maybe even into the early second. But what I like about the this guy is there's a lot of rawness to him. His family obviously couldn't afford to give him all the training that's afforded to a lot of these other players when it comes to skating coach, skills coach, nutrition guy, fitness guy, off-ice guy, skills guy, and all these types of things. And I think because of that, um, 
that given the resources that an NHL team can provide them and thinking always that we're talking about projection and not the player we're looking at as being the finished product, I think he's a guy that I think might surprise some people getting into the, the latter stages of that first round and again, maybe into that you know top 40. And my last question is, and then Amanda, I turn it over to you for some final thoughts. Who's the odds on favor to be number one next year? <laughs> who should we be watching uh, come on though on the junior side uh you know for for someone like me who doesn't follow it to the detail the tale that you do sam i mean who a couple, give me a couple of guys anyway that we should watch to see what they do oh geez you know what i haven't done to be honest with you a ton of due diligence on the on the 2021 guys Three that curveball we started with baseball no. we threw we oh, come yeah, back no. with a little baseball reference there there is a couple of guys that that have impressed me and um uh, Zach Bolduc's a guy who plays in Ramuski, who plays in the power play with Alexi Lafreniere. He scored 30 this year in a 16-year-old year, which is a pretty tough thing to do, but on a really good team. Um, so he's a guy who's going to make some noise. He's not going to be the first overall pick. I think, and if I can remember correctly, I think they're talking about um, a European kid. I want to say a Swedish kid. And I can't quite remember his name. His name escapes me at this point. But once we get to about October 8th, I'll start looking at the 2021 guys, no, no question about it. And I'll be able to have a better answer for you then. Fair enough. Uh, you know, we were supposed to focus on this, and I just kind of came out of nowhere with that one. Sorry for Well, I can give you Shane Wright in 2022. <laughs> there we go. We heard it here first. Yeah. No, he's the yeah. real deal, that guy, no doubt about it. You'll be hearing a lot about him in the years to come. And I, I guess the last one from me is, you know, you had mentioned before how last year's draft really centered around, you know, the the U.S. program and the CHL really wasn't very strongly represented in that first round. Was that a sting to the CHL at all? Well, I, I, I don't think there's any question that that any league wants to show it, its pride by having as many players taken in the draft through seven rounds. Uh, but more importantly, it's the guys that give you that, um, you know, that credibility for your league in terms of recruiting that, that that everyone's looking at the first round type of players. But it is funny, Amanda, because we've seen a, a slow and steady decline from players in the CHL being taken in the first round. And and I've been going back, uh, going back to the 2010 top prospects game and watching 17 out of 30, 19 out of 30, 20 out of 30. And then it's slowly dropped as the years have gone on. And that's not necessarily a mark on the CHL as it is a mark on a, um, European players being able to be scouted better, that teams are paying more attention to what's happening um, a- across the pond, if you will, and they're um, you know, s- uh, spending more resources on being able to uh, see what players are doing from other areas. I think the USHL has done a really good job. I think the US 18 under program, uh, US under 18 program has done an excellent job you know, procuring players at, at the under 17 group and moving those players along to the under 18s in, in the centralization of, of the USA uh, program. So there's been a lot of things that have happened. There's been the emergence of the German players. We've seen the emergence of the Finnish players. The Swedes are always strong. Russians are always in the mix. And I think some of those emerging countries that we talk about, um, you know, the Czechs, the Finns, the Germans, the Swiss in particular, um, with the influx of those players and how those players have started to come along, there's only so much room in the first round. Yep. And so the CHL is still holding a very prominent place there. The USHL is really making s- some great strides and growth there. The US under 18 program and, of course, those 
uh, aforementioned European countries that might not necessarily have been so prominently featured in round number one. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the insights were terrific. Uh, we started off talking, as I said, about baseball and your road <laughs> to the position you currently hold. And it's just a, a beautiful path that you have traveled. And I know our listeners appreciate it and your insights to this year's draft and some of the Devils prospects. Thank you so very much. Yeah, awesome, Matt. Amanda, thanks so much for having me on. Would uh, love to join you again sometime. Thanks once again to Sam Cosentino for joining us. And Amanda, I think that any Devils fan who listened to Sam's words got a bunch of things out of it. First off, the depth of the organization, as we know, is very good. But it's nice to hear someone outside the organization second that. And I loved his insights on the Devils' three first-round picks. Devils are going to get somebody very good with that number seven selection. And then, you know, he gave a little bit of a suggestion to Tom Fitzgerald and company about what to do at 18 and 20. <laughs> that he certainly did. And I mean, like, we've talked about it for the last couple of weeks. It's just really exciting. It makes the draft coming up all that more exciting, knowing that there are these three picks and, you know, what everyone keeps calling such a deep draft. So I'm looking forward to it. And the more we do these with, um, you know, draft experts and all that, the, the more excited I am. Well, we all should be. And uh, the other thing we learned is that you can start as a bat boy with the Toronto Blue Jays. Exactly. And find your way to the highest levels in this business through hard work, making connections and being diligent. So and my uh, favorite part lesson. about, yeah, my favorite part about it is that it just sort of like landed in his lap, an opportunity to move into the, the hockey realm. And, and for a lot of us, that's sort of how it happens being in the right place at the right time. I know that's what started my career. So, you know, here we go. Hopefully my career can be as uh, successful as Sam's is. And yours. Oh, you're being, you're, you're being <laughs> too humble. You're very successful, of course. Well, we're going to move from one subject to another, but not really. It's tied in. You know, Sam talked about how with the draft upcoming in a virtual manner and how the scouting is different, it's all as a result of COVID-19 and how it's impacted our world and, in a smaller sense, the sports community. So we welcome in Catherine Bogart, uh, who is our community podcast host. She also is uh, an associate producer for a lot of our content out of the uh, marketing department, but it's all one big happy family. And Catherine, we're going to tie in some of what Sam said regarding the impact on the draft with a new way to look at it with uh, a guest that you have, a very important guest indeed. Yes, definitely. And, you know, COVID has shaped so much of this year, as you said, we look back and in March, our whole world stopped. And when sports decided to cancel, that's really when throughout the country, we all decided to cancel. We all decided to pause. We decided to work from home, shut things down, have everything as social distance as possible. So we wanted to dive in the community section of the podcast into COVID from the medical standpoint. So we're bringing in this week, someone from RWJ Barnabas Health, Dr. John Bonomo. He talks to me a lot about how public health has been shaped in the last few months and the changes of public health in March at the peak of the start of the pandemic to now we're in September and he gives us tips on how to stay safe and everything. But it's a very fascinating conversation that ties in well, especially with being a virtual draft and staying safe during that. Yeah. So it does tie in together and it's another 
indication of the strength of HBSC and the New Jersey Devils. We're able to call on experts. Obviously, on the hockey side, we can get somebody like Sam Cosentino. But because of our partnership with our good friends at RWJ Barnabas Health, we can get one of the very best leading voices in this fight against COVID-19. So uh, a fascinating conversation about to ensue. Let's welcome uh, the uh, good doctor to our program. Welcome in. Thank you so much, Jack, for taking the time to join us today. Oh, my pleasure to be here. The world is different today than it was seven months ago. From a medical point of view, how has COVID-19 impacted public health and safety since March? Yes, as we all know, we live in a different world now than, than we did seven months ago. And as I have a tendency to tell people, what we had to do early on in the pandemic was disruptive, and it was abrupt, uh, but it was almost easy because it's easy to close things down. But reopening a healthcare system in a new world is a very difficult situation. And it's just not healthcare. I think schools have seen this. It's fine. You close a school. What do you do now when you open a school? Very different. Close a restaurant, open a restaurant. It, ju it just goes throughout um, our entire society. Everything we did before, and we thought it was hard and we thought it was disruptive as we closed. Opening and reimagining is a very, very different uh, cup of tea, and, and, and we're dealing with that. And um, delivering care that we need to care. We delivered care, of course, throughout the entire pandemic. You know, we saw the, so many patients uh, who, were, who were desperately ill. Uh, but now, just dealing with our regular patients, we have a significant number of precautions we need to take. We need to keep the patients safe. We need to keep the staff safe. We need to keep the visitors safe, the volunteers, the students the, the people who deliver things to our facilities, it's a, it's a huge gamut of, of new life. When you think back to March and April, when we were shutting everything down, how necessary from your perspective and the perspective of hospitals and medical professionals was it to disrupt life as much as possible? I really think we needed to do that. And I think New Jersey is the perfect example. So New Jersey... Um, we have had the highest death rate in the country, uh, 180,000, 180 deaths per 100,000 citizens. Uh, New York is number two behind us. And if we had not taken the steps that we had in New Jersey, we would have had an even greater um, death rate and a greater um, illness rate. And so um, in April, in mid-April, uh, the RWJ Barnabas Health Hospitals at one point had 1,750 COVID positive, very sick patients in our beds. As of today, we're about 2% of that. Uh, we have maybe 40 to 50 patients in all of our hospitals combined. And, and that is because we did the right things. We closed down, we did everything we needed to do um, to take care of the sick people we had with us and um, discharge so many of them home too, so that they can resume their lives. We've seen resiliency out of healthcare professionals during this pandemic, and there was a lot of support from the start until now. What support did your hospital network directly receive from the community in those first few months of COVID when the beds were full? Um, the, the support from the community was uh, extraordinary. It's the only, only word I could use, extraordinary. You know, it all started for us when... Um, Someone actually did write in chalk on a sidewalk, um, heroes work here. And, and, we, and we took that and we said, my God, that, that is so powerful. And we, and we started to parlay that into, into a campaign 
uh, just to help our, our employees keep up their morale. The All of the local municipalities would have um, thank you parades with fire trucks, et cetera, driving by the hospitals, a change of shift, or get the workers to come to the windows to, to say hello to them, to, to, to say we, we care. Uh, countless pieces of mail uh, that came, or cards and posters and things that people made just to say thank you. And enough food to feed a small country. There was not a restaurant uh, within, a, within a million miles that did not send dinners, breakfasts, lunches, pizzas, cake, anything you could imagine. Um, it's the staff for months and months and months never had to worry about bringing lunch. You know, they're working overtime. They're going to get dinner. We fed them morning, noon, and night. Um, and not that we did it, the, the communities did it, and we helped facilitate. So, um, and, and of course, people were very generous and opened up their, their wallets and their pocketbooks and, and gave us dollars and gave us supplies and gave us everything you can imagine. So it was, um, although a terrible time, it was a beautiful thing to see, to watch people truly understand that we're all in this together and anything we can do to help the healthcare community who's helping all of our citizens, we will do. And they did. There were changes every day with information, with research, with everything going on with COVID-19. This was something we've never seen before in the United States in this century. So to see that happen, what can you say about the staff that you have in the RWJ Barnabas Network Hospitals and how they performed in this time? So the the staff were just remarkable. So we really put out um, new information every single day. And every day we would, we would say to them, please bear with us. This is a change from two days ago on this particular item. And we said from the outset, it was going to be very fluid. And we had to remain fluid because it was new to us. It was new to everybody. And as the information matured and as we learned more, we had to change things we did. Uh, we changed masking. We changed visitation. We changed what would be open and closed. We changed um, what medications we would use on the patients and how we would do it. Uh, would we anticoagulate the patients or not? Would we use stewards or not? We just kept learning and we just kept changing. And so we felt a really open line of communication uh, was most important. So every day we put out a, um, a, a bulletin, an update uh, to, to our um, management team and all of our local staff at all of our hospitals. Uh, and then once a week, we put out one to the community and one to the physician community. But but the um, for the rank and file and for, for the leaders of, all of our hospitals, every single day they got a COVID update uh, so that they would know we were keeping our fingers on the pulse of what was happening with the CDC and the NIH and every other uh, governing body who are making decisions and that we were reading the information, filtering it and getting it to them in a real-time fashion so that they were, they were doing the most up-to-date things to take care of the patients and to take care of themselves. Seven months later, after we really started to first see cases in a widespread variety here in the United States, the scene in New Jersey is different. You mentioned how few patients you have now compared to what we had in the past. When you look at now reopening, as you started to discuss what are the biggest ways that people can remain safe when they're going through, whether it's going out to eat dinner, whether it's going to a sporting event, when that is available, how can people stay safe? I think, Catherine, that's a really important question because you know, something called the transmission rate is really important. And in New Jersey, about three or four weeks ago, we got down to a terrific number, about a 0.7, which means 
um, we were below. So one-to-one transmission is if, if somebody gets the disease, they're going to give it to one other person. So once you get below one, we can start to get to no, no disease. But once it's over one, we're never going to get to, to no disease. And we have gotten less than one. Uh, and then it started to creep up a little bit. And it got over one. And that was about three or four weeks ago. And then we started to go down again. And we were down to 0.8. So we were in a very good place again. However, as of yesterday, uh, we had continued to go up in the transmission rate uh, every single day for 11 days. And now we're at 1.11. Very controllable. But we're still not out of the woods. We cannot uh, take our eye off the ball. We must continue to do those things that seem simple, but the things that worked for us and the things that saved New Jersey and brought us back. And that is we must, must um, practice source control. We must wear face coverings. That is hugely important all the time. Uh, and um, no, well, I just won't wear it. I'm running in this store. I'm going to wear it on my chin. That doesn't really help. Uh, we really need to wear face coverings and wear them correctly. We need to socially isolate as much as we can. You know, we're out, we're in stores, we're in restaurants. There's no reason to stand one feet, one foot behind the person in front of you. Stand six feet behind. The line will be longer, but it's okay. It's safer. Uh, and certainly um, hand hygiene to continue to eradicate the virus, which is always the right thing to do, even in a flu season. Um, and, and I think we have to isolate the cases that, that, are, that exist. Uh, in order to do that, we have to test liberally, and then we have to trace people. And tracing is, is a remarkable way to really continue to contain the virus. So if we test, isolate, and trace, continue to wash our hands, continue to social distance, continue to cover our faces, we're going to get there. As we continue to see more things open up, we're seeing youth sports starting very slowly in New Jersey. We're seeing 25% capacity for indoor dining. There's steps that are happening. How much promise does that give the healthcare professionals who have been working tirelessly in fighting this since March? Um, I must tell you, the healthcare professionals worry uh, because no one can appreciate, everyone can appreciate the numbers and the loss of life, and, and it's terrible to read about and see and hear on the news, et cetera. But the healthcare professionals lived it in a way that they never did before. People who've been in the healthcare business for 20, 30, 50 years never saw anything like this. And, and they want people to do the right thing because they know what can happen. And they also want to protect themselves because they are on the front line. And when these sick people come in, they're not going to say, no, you didn't do the right thing. They're just going to take care of them. So, so when people take care of themselves, they are taking care of the healthcare workers because the less of them that get sick, the less, less exposure there is for the healthcare worker. And another way to protect them is giving back. I know before it was give whatever medical supplies, whatever cleaning supplies you could to your local hospital, doctor's office, whatever you could. How can the community support the hospital networks now in this time where you might not need a mask from someone to create? Mm -hmm. You know, that the, the way the community can best support the hospitals is to do all the right things. There's nothing the, the hospital's system and the healthcare business wants more than for people to be healthy. And that's what we want. We want them to take care of themselves, to not come to our facilities sick with COVID. I mean, you must come if you, if you don't feel well, but, but there's nothing we want more than for people to be healthy and not have to access us. Looking forward 
seeing a post-COVID world, how do you think the impacts of this virus will impact society, especially when it comes to decisions of public health and safety moving forward? I think people will be a lot more um, conscious of infectious disease. You know, we had gotten to a point uh, where we were sloppy about those things because people just didn't think on the pandemic level. Uh, even flu, people just would laugh off getting a flu vaccine. You know, last year, only 40% of people in the country got a flu vaccine. But it was one of the safest things you could do for yourself. Uh, people are going to look at those things very differently going forward. And they're going to understand that, you know what? This can get very serious. And since they had not lived through a pandemic and had been so many years since we had one, more than 100 years, um, people just didn't feel like it was real. Now they know how real it can be. And I think that is going to help people do the right things. We've done a lot of, a lot of the correct things structurally that are not going to go away. I think uh, we've gotten smarter about plexiglass and separation and um, not being on top of each other like we were so often. And that's why we always spread the, spread the flu. And that's how, luckily, the flu wasn't as deadly as COVID. Um, but, but I think people are a little more wary about spreading from one to the other now. This is all so helpful to hear from you and from the hospital networks. Thank you so much for all the service that you and RWJ Barnabas Health has done during this time. And thank you for the tips on how to move forward safely. We appreciate the time, Jack. My pleasure. Well, that was fascinating, Catherine. And the fact of the matter is you can't have enough information in any uh, venue or any particular subject. And this one is so important to us all. Uh, great interview. Yeah, and it's it's good for us to remember the ways that this world will be different after a pandemic, especially in sports. Think about it. When you're at an NHL arena, how many people do you come in contact with, with sporting events, with even just on the team side, these players and the doctors and the media and all that. So it's very great to get that insight from Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Quality Officer for RWJ Barnabas Health, Dr. John Bonomo, and also some great tips for all of us average folks at home on how to stay safe during this time. It, I cannot believe how many months it's been since this all started, but we know some tips to keep us safe as things start to reopen and as we start to see more people in a daily life. Well, and Amanda, I think uh, you would echo that, that, that sentiment, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing people, which we, we will yeah. do. I mean, our office is going to open shortly and, you know, we'll be able to say hello, but in a different way. Um, you know, I'm a social guy. I know you're both social people. <laughs> I guess I'll have to adjust. We'll all have to adjust. It's funny you say that because I... I, this is sound kind of wrong, but like, I'm very handsy. Like I, I like to communicate like through touch and like touching someone's shoulder or something like that. And it's, you know, I have to learn new ways to like express myself. I know it sounds like I'm very touchy. That's not really what I meant, but like <laughs> I use that as like a greeting and all that. And so, and to, you know, let people know that I care about them. And so it's, it's very strange and it's a whole new world and I'm just going to have to find new ways to, to express myself in a way. Yeah. Well, the other day I was out golfing and I know the shaking of hands of strangers that's out. Uh, yeah. But I still haven't worked through the awkwardness of, are you okay with a fist bump or do you want yeah. the elbow? And so you kind of start this way and you realize the person's doing this and you, you kind of slide to the elbow instead of the fist bump. And hey, it's a brave new world. Uh, and like I think about, 
I, I think about like when we're in the locker room, I think about when we're in the locker room and, you know, we'll be standing there and like some of the guys will be coming off the ice after we're already in the room and, you know, they'll give you like a tap with the stick or they'll, you know, sometimes jokingly they'll, you know, try pretend to throw something at you and, you know, spit particles or whatever in your, your way. And like all these, <laughs> yeah, you get used to it, I guess. Actually you don't ever, but just like these really small things. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, um, relearning how to express yourself in a positive way. You know, like those are little things that like make you feel comfortable in the room. Like you belong, like those types of things when like the guys will tap you or whatever with their sticks, everything has to be relearned in a way. But there is, there is a path, Catherine. Yeah, exactly. There (laughs) is a path. And uh, I think uh, uh, your guest was fantastic in terms of explaining that. Yeah, and masks will be a big thing. So if you haven't gone on the trend of getting a fashionable mask yet, if you are still using a bandana all these months later, it might be time to invest in a nice devil's-themed one, maybe. That could be a good good option. Why not? I, I agree. I've got one, and uh, a lot of people love it. I love it. So anyway, that'll wrap things up for this edition of Speak of the Devils. For Amanda Stein and Catherine Bogert, I'm Matt Lachlan. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your company. Until next time, bye-bye. Be safe, be well. 